Welcome to Open Your Eyes, a podcast about empowering each of us with the perspective and tools to grow and change. You know, almost two years ago, a few friends of mine and I were sitting in a room talking about how we could help people see themselves in a new way. That day, this podcast was born from a deep desire to help us all live a happier life and the firm belief that a powerful way to make that happen is to open our eyes to new ways of seeing life. You see, at the foundation of our behavior and beliefs is the way we see the world and ourselves in it. So, hopefully, this podcast will give you a new perspective and a few tools you can use to think and live better. And when you're done listening, be sure to share this podcast with someone you know. It may be what they need in their life today. Let's get started. Today, I'd like to talk about a life worth living. Your life worth living. Alfred was born in Stockholm, Sweden in 1833, and he was the third son to a father who was an engineer and an inventor. Of his seven siblings, only three lived to adulthood. His father failed in business, and Alfred lived with his mother, who ran a vegetable shop for years, trying to support her sons without support from her husband, until Alfred's father sent for them to come and live with him in Russia. His father prospered in Russia. He invented the lathe, making plywood a common product, and even invented a torpedo. His father's new prosperity allowed Alfred to study languages, literature, and science. And as a young man, he studied with chemist Ascanio Sobrero, who had invented nitroglycerin three years earlier. Nitroglycerin is a colorless, oily, explosive liquid. It's extremely volatile. And Sobrero never wanted to use it as an explosive, but Alfred would continue to experiment with safer ways to handle the compound. And soon, his experiments led to a stable way of using nitro, mostly in dynamite. The family produced armaments for the Crimean War, and Alfred improved his inventions, including the design of a blasting cap, which would make dynamite available to the world. Dynamite was in huge demand because it was more stable than nitro, and could be shipped anywhere. Nobel even invented ballastite, a smokeless powder explosive that's still used in rocket propellant today. One day, his younger brother and several factory workers were killed in an explosion at Alfred's factory. Alfred also founded the Alfred Nobel Company in Germany making blasting oil, and they shipped several crates of nitroglycerin to California destined for the Central Pacific Railroad which planned to use it to expedite the construction of the summit tunnel through the Sierra Nevada mountains. But one crate exploded, destroying the Wells Fargo offices in San Francisco and killing 15 people. Well, Alfred's company would later become a major supplier of nitro during World War I and II, making and shipping about 336 tons of nitro per week. This massive amount of demand for his product made Alfred Nobel extremely rich. Although he developed hundreds of other inventions, no invention generated as much income or press as dynamite. He filed 355 patents and accumulated a massive amount of wealth during his life. Later in life, the death of his brother Ludwig caused several newspapers to incorrectly publish an obituary of Alfred in air, thinking it was Alfred that had died, not Ludwig. In several of these obituaries, The written summary of his life was not what Alfred expected. One French newspaper condemned him for his invention of military explosives, calling him the merchant of death. 
It's said Dr. Alfred Nobel, who became rich by finding ways to kill more people faster than ever, died yesterday. Well, Nobel read the obituary and was appalled at the idea that he would be remembered in this way. How could he have gone about his life imagining, inventing, working, building, and have such success? But when all was said and done, his life was not regarded by others as having great worth. And this caused him to consider, to ask the question, had his life been worth living? Had he made the choices that led to making a difference in a positive way to the world? Well, all of this impacted him, so he made a decision to create a different legacy, a different worth, a way to make life worth living. He wished he had used his inventions for peace and advancing humankind and other worthy purposes. And while he could not go back and redo what he had done, he could turn his wealth and use it for good. So he wrote and signed his last will and testament that would take 94% of his worth, which at the time was $186 million, a huge sum of money in 1895, and established the Nobel Prize. The Nobel Prize is awarded to excellence in physical science, chemistry, and medical science. Another Nobel Prize is given for literary work, and the last is given to a person or society that renders the greatest service to the cause of peace. The awardee of the Nobel Prize today earns a gold medallion and receives about $1 million. Now, not many of us, like Alfred Nobel, will get to read our own obituary and reflect on our own life. But we can open our eyes, like Alfred, to find a new direction and redirect our life into a life worth living. We all get a chance to look back and look ahead and decide what worth will our life be while we're on this earth and after we're gone. And this look back and forward is a very useful view. What worth have we made? What worth will we create? And I don't know about you, but as I look behind and ahead in my life, the number of days ahead are significantly less than the days that have passed. And this causes me to think, to consider acting with more urgency. What about you? As you look forward, is your life a life of high worth? And if so, how can you live that life? And if not, like me, what do you need to do to modify life's path so that you're energized to create value in the years that you have left? Well, the first thing I'd suggest we do is to pause and take a look back and forward. This is extremely valuable. When you do this, think in terms of worth, what you're doing that is of great worth or what you could do. Alfred Nobel built a business of financial worth only to realize his life's worth didn't lie in the financial gains he achieved. Likewise, you and I can stop to consider what worth we are creating. Now, this is a fascinating exercise because it may validate some parts of your life. And this validation is really helpful in generating satisfaction and gratitude for what you have or are doing. And on the other hand, it may spur you onto a new path in a few areas as well. So take a pause, like halftime at a game, to think about how to win a life worth living. Thank heaven games don't end at halftime. If they did, the record books would be completely different. You know, halftime is perhaps the most important part of the game. What do teams do at halftime? They review what worked and what didn't work. They make adjustments and new plans for doing things better in the second half. They get inspired. They get refreshed and prepared because now they're more familiar with their opponent. 
And they've used what they've learned to go out and play better. And life is very much the same. We can step aside, go into the locker room, and assess how we're doing in life. Now we're more familiar with our opponents, and we can make adjustments and get refreshed to begin anew. At halftime, there isn't anything you can do about the first half score. It's done. It's in the record books. At halftime, you can't spend any time wishing things were different. You can only take what you've learned and make urgent plans for change. Life's halftime is the same. The more time spent on the new game plan, the better we'll be. Learning to create worth in our life is what we're meant to do. So at a halftime in life, we don't have time to get over our past failures. They're in the record books. We can only control what we choose to do today. And this may mean we need to stop focusing on what has happened and focus instead on what's going to happen. I mean, think about the coach of a game. Imagine if a coach's reaction to mistakes in the first half was to be depressed. Can you see a coach reliving and reviewing the mistakes over and over again? Can you see him sitting in the locker room, head in hands, wondering why bad things always happen to him? If he reacted like this, he wouldn't have time to get a new game plan or focus on what's next. A good coach knows. There's a second half to be played, and it's not won or lost on a single play. So he keeps his head in the game and prepares for the next half. A good coach doesn't ignore mistakes either. He uses them for instruction and learning. If he runs a play and it doesn't work, he doesn't ignore it. He faces up to the fact that his design didn't work. He learns from it, recalibrates, and calls a new play. His prior failures inform his decision-making the next time around. So, in addition to you pausing for a halftime coaching session, what else can we do to chart a course to a life of great worth? You know, this year's Nobel Prizers in medicine were Catalin, Carrico, and Drew Weissman. The Hungarian-born Carrico and American Weissman conducted research at the University of Pennsylvania on modifying mRNA. This research enabled the development of COVID-19 vaccines by Pfizer and Moderna. Catalin grew up in a small town in Hungary. Her father was a butcher, and this caused her to be fascinated with how living things work. As she started in higher ed, she chose to study biology. And it was during her undergraduate studies that she learned about messenger RNA. She continued to study mRNA throughout her PhD and postgraduate work. She was obsessed with it. In her words, if DNA makes up the letters of life, RNA creates the words and ultimately the sentences. You know, in the natural world, the body relies on millions of tiny proteins to keep itself alive and healthy. And it uses mRNA to tell cells which proteins to make. And if you could design your own mRNA, you could, in theory, hijack the process and create any protein you wanted. For example, you could instruct your cells to make proteins that were antibodies to vaccinate against infection, or enzymes to reverse a rare disease, or growth agents to mend damaged heart tissue. Well, Carrico became convinced that messenger RNA could be used to help the body create its own proteins to treat disease. But as she started her pioneering work with it, she hit one roadblock after another. You see, mRNA is unstable and it doesn't last long in the human body. And she was searching for an answer when in 1989, she moved to the University of Pennsylvania to continue her studies. There she met an immunologist named Drew Weissman. And Weissman figured out how to encase the mRNA in a fat bubble, making it strong enough to last in the body 
yet attractive to the immune system. And as a result, their research started to speed up. And they developed vaccines for influenza, HIV, hepatitis, and Zika. All were nearly 100% effective. In 2005, nearly 16 years after she came to the University of Pennsylvania, Carrico and Wiseman published their research. Then, after another eight years of testing in 2013, Carrico joined two scientists who formed a company called BioNTech to further the development of the technology. So, in January of 2020, two weeks after China published the genetic sequence for COVID-19, Carrico had a vaccine prepared for the new coronavirus. BioNTech knew they needed help to scale this vaccine production. They already were partners with Pfizer on another vaccine, so Pfizer took the reins, calling it Project Lightspeed, and the rest is history. Here's the point. Carrico and Wiseman contributed to the world in a big way, a contribution of great worth. But it wasn't done in a day, and it wasn't done without work, and it wasn't done without faith. They continued to research and try and explore because they had a vision of what could happen and the faith to get there. And I believe that they and others were inspired to do what they did, and they followed that inspiration. Now, the same goes for you. You may not be in the business of life-saving vaccines, but you are in the business of life-changing effort. And I believe that you have also been inspired, that there are times in your life in which you've been both inspired and prepared to do something necessary and remarkable. You know, Samuel Taylor Coleridge said, he who is best prepared can best serve in his moment of inspiration. Taking a look at your life to pursue of what's most worth can and does allow for this inspiration to enter into your thinking. Because if you never chart the course of life, you never let heaven have a hand in that life. Another Nobel Prize winner in 2023 for the Nobel Prize in Physics was a trio of scientists, one from Ohio State University, one from the Institute of Quantum Optics in Germany, and one from Lund University in Sweden. And they won the prize for conducting experiments that produced pulses of light so short that they were measured in attoseconds, or one billionth of one billionth of a second. Their research can help provide images from inside atoms and molecules. And the breakthrough allows, for example, for blood samples to be examined with light flashes to detect any changes, opening the possibility of early detection of diseases like lung cancer. Another Nobel Prize winner for this year was Narjus Mohammadi, the Iranian rights activist. She was chosen from 351 nominees. On September 20th, 2023, Iran's parliament passed a law that would increase penalties for women not adhering to the rigid Islamic dress code. The law equated refusing to wear hijab, either in public or virtually, as nudity, and it mandated prison sentences for up to a decade for violators. It also penalizes Iranians, including businesses or restaurants, who allow improper dress of women in their establishments. The hijab has been a contentious issue since the Islamic Republic made it mandatory decades ago. But the dress code became a flashpoint in September of 2022 after 22-year-old Masi Amini died in police detention for wearing the hijab improperly. Her death triggered three months of nationwide protests. The protests grew from demands for more personal freedom. Security forces reportedly killed more than 500 people in a bloody crackdown. 
and the government has installed cameras in public places to identify women whose faces are exposed. Well, Mohammadi, who has served multiple prison sentences for the past two decades, is best known for her fight for freedom and against oppression of Iranian women. She was born in Zajan, Iran. She attended university and obtained a degree in physics. In college, she also wrote articles supporting women's rights, and she was arrested twice for doing so. Well, to make her life of great worth, she didn't follow the path of physics or engineering. She chose instead to become a journalist and write about reform. She felt this was the way of more worth to the people in her country. Because of her writing in 1999, she was arrested by the Iranian government and spent 14 years in prison. She was arrested again and sentenced to another seven years. She's currently in prison for writing against the atrocities committed against women who are arrested. She wrote detailing the sexual and physical abuse of these detained women. The long list of women and men who have been executed or disappeared mysteriously after imprisonment for drug-related charges or protesting or not wearing the hijab are well documented by the U.S. State Department. On September 20th, teenager Nika Shakarami disappeared after being arrested for taking part in protests. She was missing for 10 days until authorities called her family and said they could pick up her body in the morgue. Women, life, freedom is Mohammadi's motto. This because she decided, instead of engineering, she would write and speak. Now, you and I won't likely live a life to the extreme of Mohammadi or ever win a Nobel Prize, but we can live a worthwhile life. So here's what I'm asking myself today. Am I doing what is of great worth? Maybe I'm taking care of myself because my health is worthwhile. Maybe I'm trying to model good behavior for my children. That's worthwhile. Maybe I'm giving to those in my purview. That's worthwhile. But there are a few things in my life that I could trade up and trade out for things of more worth. You know, for years at Yale University, a program has been underway, and it's called the Life Worth Living Program. The Life Worth Living Program exists to create critical discussion about lasting human significance. The Life Worth Living Program equips students and educators and the public for the lifelong process of discerning, articulating, and pursuing the good life through engaging the world's great philosophical and religious traditions. Now, many of the faculty and the school itself has bought into this philosophy that the goal of their education is to help people find a life worth living. If a prestigious university has found it important to dedicate their efforts to this cause, then you and I might benefit from doing the same. One of the students of the program said that what she learned was that she is responsible to her faith, to God, for what she does with what he has given her. And through her efforts to consider her life worth living, she decided God gave her his word, and she's responsible to show him what she's doing with that gift. And I suspect, because of this, her life will be more worthwhile as a result. Can you see the power of pursuing a life worth living? Of getting off autopilot and living more intentionally? We all have opportunities that come our way. God sends us some inspiration. We meet someone who inspires us. We see a path that may be risky or even scary, but know it might be worth it. Whatever it is, these opportunities pass by us. And it's up to us to have a life worth living mindset so that we can see them and seize them. Here is one story the founders of Yale's program share. 
Simon lived in a small house in a small town by a small lake in a small fiefdom at the edge of a very large empire. He had married a woman from the same town and lived near his in-laws. And like many of his neighbors, he made his living as a fisherman. He spent many of his nights out on the lake with his brother Andrew, applying their trade, looking for a catch. On the seventh day of the week, as the law of God commanded, he rested and attended services at the local synagogue. He had a good life, a stable trade, a family, a community. Not a flashy life, but a respectable one filled with ordinary goodness. Until two words turned the whole thing upside down. Follow me. Jesus, the new teacher from Nazareth, stood on the shore and called to Simon and Andrew. Now, ordinarily, this would be crazy talk. Who walks up to two guys at work and tells them to drop everything and follow him around? But Jesus spoke with surprising authority. Word around town that his preaching rang true and that his words carried power. That amazing things happened when he was there. And for some unknown reason, Simon followed. For three years, he listened and tried to understand. Awestruck, he watched miracle after miracle. He learned to call this man not just a teacher, but Lord. And this Lord, in turn, gave Simon a new name, Peter, which means rock. But time and again, Peter failed to live up to his name. He misunderstood. He got overzealous. And when it counted most, he lost his nerve. When authorities rested Jesus, Peter denied even knowing him. He watched helplessly as imperial soldiers crucified his Lord. Everything would have been lost. All of his following would have come to nothing except on that third day, astonishingly, Peter encountered his Lord raised from the dead. From then on, Peter's whole life was devoted to living as Jesus directed. For years, he led the growing community of followers. Not many fishermen got further away from home than a hundred-mile pilgrimage to Jerusalem, but Peter's mission led him to Syria and Greece and even the imperial capital, Rome. Eventually, it would lead to his death, and according to Christian tradition, Peter was crucified in Rome. He is said to have insisted that he be hung upside down because he was not worthy of the honor of dying in the same way as his Lord. Peter let what passed in front of him inspire him to a life worth living. And I suspect if Peter was preoccupied with his business or himself, he may have missed the inspiration that came from the Lord's call. He may have dismissed the call or not considered it as important to his business or life. But instead, he found a life worth living and he has changed many lives for good, including mine. And maybe something is calling to you right now in your life to listen, to follow, to trade what you have or a portion of what you have for something of greater worth. You know, the story of Sir Nicholas Winton is one that probably would have gone untold as his magnificent contribution to humanity was kept silent for more than 50 years. Winton was a stockbroker working one day on the job in the stock exchange. In the winter of 1938, he visited a friend in Prague. And while there, he saw the frightening reality of life under Nazi rule including refugees living in dreadful conditions and a war that seemed imminent. The children, Winton noticed, seemed to be particular victims of this time of hopelessness and bondage. Well, taking Nod from the British Kindertransport Program, Winton created a similar program for Czechoslovakian children, recruiting volunteers, raising money, and often using a majority of his own money to help get Czech Jewish children out of the country. 
Well, Winton and his mother formed an organization they called the British Committee for Refugees from Czechoslovakia. They raised money and recruited British families to serve as foster parents. Ultimately, Winton returned to England to coordinate the effort and continued working his day job to earn money to support the cause. In the end, Winton and those working with him got eight trainloads of children, nearly 700 children, out of the country. Winton continued working for the cause during his lifetime, at the same time living a normal life, serving in the Air Force, marrying and having children. Winton never spoke a word of what he had done. It wasn't until his wife came across a scrapbook of his efforts and gave it to a historian that Winton's story was then shared. He now is recognized for a life worth living. He lived his life, but alongside the necessary in his life, he did a work of great worth. So, after all of this, will you accept a bit of a challenge today? Put a new window on your belief window. That new lens has the perspective that something is coming your way that will enable you to live a life of more worth. Let that lens help you filter and see and believe that you have something great to contribute. You know, someone told me this week that she has a talent in playing piano. She's always felt like she should pass that gift on that teachers gave to her in her life. But she doesn't need the money, so she doesn't teach piano lessons. So what she considered is starting a small studio in the poorest part of our city, and they're giving free lessons to kids who may never otherwise learn how to play or learn about music. What great worth could she give through this type of effort? Well, she just put on the question, how can I do something of great worth on her belief window and is looking for worthwhile things as a result. And the same can happen to you and me. With this lens, with this view, we can find the inspiration to do good. Now, on this topic, several authors wrote, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. These words document a genuine insight into the kind of life that is worthy of our humanity. And it's bitterly ironic that over the course of his life, the man who penned these words held some 600 human beings in slavery, and it didn't have to be that way. Thomas Jefferson's original draft of the Declaration of Independence included a statement against the slave trade. He called it a cruel war against human nature itself. That first draft would have been a Declaration of Independence and an Emancipation Proclamation in one. But politics, and perhaps Jefferson himself, couldn't bear to put the insight into practice, and so we got the bare ideal, all men are created equal. And that's not to say no one at power at the time understood the far-ranging implications of these words. Many did. In 1780, a mere four years after the Declaration, Massachusetts used Jefferson's language in its state constitution, and within three years, the state Supreme Court had abolished slavery. On the other hand, slaveholders in the South, too, saw the power of the phrase, changing all men to all free men in six Southern constitutions. You see, it's entirely possible for two people to hear the same words, receive the same inspiration, and one person use it for a life of great worth, and the other to enhance their own life. Here's what I know. You can choose a life of great worth. God is behind you and before you and he will help you. So don't stop looking. It can be found. You'll find what you're looking for. Today is the day, and I'm confident 
that you are where you are for a reason, and perhaps that reason is to find a life worth living. You may remember the story of David as he considered facing Goliath. He looked at what would be of worth to his brothers, his nation, and to God. And with this view, he saw things differently than others. When others looked at Goliath, they saw a giant too powerful to defeat. When David looked at him, he saw a target too big to miss. So, as we end today, remember, your life is a life of great worth. You can trade out and trade up to make it of more worth. So pause a bit at halftime. Let the calls coming to you and the opportunities before you inspire you to act. Put on a new view, and God and life will reveal how you can make your life a life worth living. Most of all, thanks for being here today. And don't forget to share this podcast with a friend and join us next week for another podcast as we learn to open our eyes to who and what we can become.